Hello and welcome to the Rubber Duck Dev Show. I'm Chris. And I'm Creston. And tonight, I'm going to talk about Raptors. Okay, I don't even know what those are, but we, we will be taught. You know what doesn't know what Raptors are either? What? Spell check, because every time I type that thing out, it changed <laughs> it to a tractor, driving me bananas. <laughs> Uh, that had to be fun. All right, so, uh, before we get into that, how was your week? Pretty good, although, you know, I did some consulting, worked on my product, added some new features, but one thing that drove me batty for eh, about a day, I was doing other stuff to prevent going full bat mode, but suddenly... I went to run my tests and any test that called out to something, which I do have some tests that do that, or even it was doing a visit. Yeah, no, yeah, it wasn't even just calling out. So I was getting net timeout errors, even if I'm just in Capybara or Capybara or whatever, doing a visit to one of my own internal URLs in the test, it was failing with a net timeout from Ruby. I'm like, what the heck is this? And then, so I start going down the rabbit hole. I'm like, okay, did I install some gem that's doing this? Is the Ruby version, is there something different there? And, you know, once I eliminated that as a potential cause, I'm like, or looked in other projects and other projects were having the same issues. So I'm like, okay, is it my machine? So I'm looking at, is there something wrong there? Let me restart it. That didn't help. Let me shut it down. <laughs> Let's start it back up. Let me apply patches. Let me, you know, anything and everything. Nothing worked. So then I'm like pulling on my laptop. I'm like, all right, does anything work here? Nothing was working there. And then I'm like, isn't my bloody network or whatever, you know? So I go and I reboot the router and tra la la, everything works. Oh. Now I will say this nothing else was broken. I could use web browsers. I could do my patches, my updates. Everything worked but Ruby. Hmm. That's so I'm bizarre. Like, what is it? No offense to the Ruby community, but what is it in <laughs> Ruby that has, there's a networking issue that causes it to break, but nothing else? That is weird. I have seen some issues where someone was trying to update gems and IPv6 wasn't working. And I don't know if it was having problems falling back to IPv the IPv4. I don't know. And it, the message just, was just nondescript. It just said net timeout error. And that's pretty much all it was. So it's... Gee, thanks, Microsoft. <laughs> well, this is Linux, but... I know. <laughs> yeah, so... I had nothing to, well, I mean, and yeah, there's, for some reason, it wasn't communicating over the, over the network. I mean, so of course that makes sense, that error message, but yeah, I'd love to know if anyone in the community or in the comment section knows what could potentially cause this, I'd be grateful to know, because, you know, that's a number of hours of lost work. Yeah, that doesn't make a lot of sense. Uh, so I have spent the majority of my week working on the Ruby 3 upgrade of our core systems, our core projects. And really what most of it has boiled down to is the, the parameter changes, the double splat. So it's not difficult, it's just very tedious. Yeah. Going through and finding all those places and fixing them and waiting for the test to run to make sure I've missed anything. And then, you know, so it's just a tedious process, but it's not, it doesn't seem like anything's breaking other than that. Everything I've run <laughs> into. You deploy. <laughs> no, of course. Uh, everything I've run into so far is, is, because all I changed was upgrading from Ruby 2.7.2 to 3.0. Um, everything so far has just been the double splat fix. Um, so but you didn't have any gems that, or I guess you, you, it sounds like you guys 
tried to keep your gems up to date so there wasn't anything that was yeah i mean there were there there were actually a couple of internal gems i had to update because oh, right they yeah. needed the double splat as well but it's you know it hasn't been bad i think there was i think there was one gem that i needed to update but that's because it was kind of out of date anyway we hadn't we hadn't updated it for a little while so um it hasn't been a bad process but um i think we're actually going to talk about that that whole issue next week because it's while this was introduced in ruby 3 it was actually in deprecation warnings in 27 um it's it's kind of a confusing thing to understand if you're tr if you're going into your code and trying to figure out all right which things do i have to change so we'll dig into that next week and hopefully get some better understanding of it but tonight sensei teach me reactors all righty please put up the presentation and next slide thank you here we go okay so go ahead and do the warning so the first time that you start using Ractors in Ruby, and this is came, became available in Ruby 3.0, and it's considered experimental. So the first thing you'll see is this message, quote, Ractor is experimental and the behavior may change in future versions of Ruby. Also, there are many implementation issues. So basically, they're saying don't use this yet. And this, it also includes 3.1. So the exact same message is 3.0. I mean, I hope there's some forward movement on this because I really like where they're going with this and you'll see that in the presentation. Okay, do do that. But so it's a, essentially it's not production ready yet. Right. In presenting that because as soon as you say Rector new and start doing stuff in the log, well, well, in the console at least it gives you that message. So clearly it's considered experimental. All right, so let's let's talk about the problem on why they kind of are going down this route. So Ruby has a global VM lock. So VM meaning the virtual machine. So when you're running Ruby code, there's a global lock on how many threads can run at once. And now prior to Ruby 1.9, you may have heard this called the global interpreter lock. So it was a global interpreter lock, but because we have more of a proper VM now, since Ruby 1.9, the proper terminology is GVL or the global VM lock. Okay, next point. So what this basically means is you cannot run Ruby code in more than one thread at once. So basically only, and another way to say it is only one thread in a Ruby process can hold the GVL or the VM lock. So I stated that as the problem, but is it much of a problem? Because the reality is that, like this says here, if your work requires a lot of I.O., like you're calling out to a network, you're writing stuff to disks, you're doing database access, other threads can do work while the thread can wait on the I.O. And that's kind of how Sidekick works in the next uh, point. You know, that's why Sidekick works well, is because it is multi-threaded and other threads can be doing work while other threads are waiting for disk access or uh, database access, network jobs, et cetera. Right. So, so most jobs use a fair amount of IO. So kind of right now, Ruby's answer to multi-threading is background jobs. Well, in I mean, a manner of speaking. I would well, I would say it this way, their answer to for production stuff today, their answer to concurrency is threading. And if you want to do jobs and do jobs efficiently, not necessarily the Ruby core team, but I'm just saying most people using Rails and whatnot, what they've identified as the best way to do background jobs is Sidekick, which is threaded. Right. Excuse me. And that's also why Puma has become pretty popular, you know, because Unicorn is process-based, Puma is thread-based. And because you can, depending on what you're doing, it does still wait on I.O., Puma can give you a little bit more performance because it leverages that multi-threadedness. So how much work can be done in parallel? That's kind of the question because that determines 
how fast a speed up you have based upon the number of, say, units that are doing work. So there's something called in computer science, Amdahl's law, I'm not sure quite how to pronounce that, where it basically says your speed up that you get by adding more could be processors or processors or threads, whatever it is, is limited by what must be done serially. So basically the more stuff you can do in parallel, the more processors you use, the, the faster things get, which is natural conclusion. And the next point is that, and there's actually, Amdahl's law is actually, there's a function. So you can actually plug in parameters into a function to get what your speed up will be. Um, and there'll be links in the description for all of this uh, stuff, or at least on the website for references where you can look this up and see what the function is. But like one example of it, if 50% of the work you're doing can be done in parallel, and let's say 50% of it is IO work, calling out to a database, calling out to a network service, is 50% of the work is that way. If you break it into, if you have like 10 threads or 10 processes, whatever, only gives you a doubling in performance as opposed to a 10x performance. So basically you would think that, hey, if you, know, you want to be able to add 10 times the number of processors to something and get 10 times the work, well, that can only happen if you can do all that work in parallel. Once you have to do some in parallel, some at serial, it breaks down. So the more things you do in parallel, the faster you'll get you know, adding 10 things, getting that 10x result. So the last question is, how do we get the 10x? And that basically, you, everything needs to be in parallel. But the problem is you've got a, a critical path that things are dependent on other things finishing first in most cases. Yeah, that could be true. Although if you are talking about um, people accessing a web server for, you know, if you could do everything in parallel, you know, you don't have to wait on each individual person asking for a particular web page. Oh, sure. As an, as an example. All right, so an answer to get to 10X is Raptors. So Raptors, and this name is basically Ruby Actors, allow you to go full parallel and use 100% of every core on your machine. Now they do this by each Raptor getting its own VM lock. So before every process only had, every Ruby process only has one VM lock and it shares it amongst threads. Whereas what a Raptor does is it gets its own VM lock and a single Ruby process can have multiple Raptors. Hmm. All right, so you know, I'm talking about these actors. So what are actors? So the next point is basically it's a system of independent processes. Now, they're not really operating system processes. Um, Ruby, I don't think has a terminology form. I use processes here as the terminology because that's what Elixir or Erlang uses because Elixir and Erlang use the actor model. Essentially, that's how they do their whole infrastructure. Everything's pretty much an actor. Anyway, there are these independent processes or primitives that can send and receive messages, kind of like an object in Ruby, but each has, has its own memory space. So there you can see the advantage is that when you have your own memory space and you're not sharing things, you can do things in parallel much more easily. If you have something shared, you're going to have to and have locking going on. Right, you have to now, wait in each, line. Exactly. If you're accessing something that's shared, you you now you've had to introduce locks, and now you've introduced waiting. Yeah. Whereas the actor model avoids that by having stuff in parallel as much as possible. Now each actor has its own address, so that actors can talk to other actors, and a mailbox to receive messages, and it serially processes those messages asynchronously. So basically one actor sends a message to another actor and then it does something else. So it's serial asynchronicity. Yeah. 
What? <laughs> what that means is actor A can send a message to actor B, and now actor A doesn't have to wait for that message. It can immediately start doing something else. And that something else is probably looking in its mailbox getting the next message. Whereas actor B received that message, it doesn't have to send a res you know, response or it does its work when it's when it's come down to the proper point in its mailbox queue that it, that's the next message, it does that work and then does whatever it's supposed to do next. Maybe it sends the message to some other actor or sends it a message to the one who sent it the work to initially done and say, hey, here's the result. Wait, so how is this not SOA? Well, this came before SOA. Okay. But maybe it is. <laughs> so SOA is kind of an example then of what these actor models are. <clears throat> In a general sense. Maybe. I, I don't know. I mean, I I learned all about this just from learning Elixir, et cetera. Okay. And each actor has its own internal state. So this makes sense from a like again, Elixir, their processes, and they have their own memory space that they can access and they can store things like accumulate, accumulate things um, or do something different based upon future messages and things of that nature. So that's kind of what the actor is. And in terms of the terminology of talking about the active models, they talk about these three different um, ways in terms of what actors can do and go ahead and put all of them, there's four messages here. So they can send messages to other actors, which I mentioned. They can create new actors. I don't know if actors can do this yet. I'm assuming they can, but I didn't see some of those implementation details uh, because this is really just the theoretical what actors can do. Uh, designate what to do with future messages. So, you know, they have this, their own memory space to store things so they can change their behavior for future messages. And the last one I've added because yes, they do work. They can process, they can process things. They can you know, talk to databases and things of that nature. So that's one I added in just for completeness because I'm like, well, fundamentally actors do work. <laughs> well, so this, this brings up the last slide. One of the things I was thinking is you know, if they're they're serially calling each other, so actor well, they're A they're not serially calling each other. They well, are looking in a mailbox and serially processing it. Right, but so actor A can call actor B. Sure. Say, hey, hey, Mister B, I've got some things here. Here's a thing that you got to do, and you're good at this thing. Do this thing. Yep. Right. So actor A's processing of its messages each take twenty milliseconds. The thing it keeps asking actor B to do is taking three seconds each. So at some point, actor B gets backed up. So then I was sitting there thinking, well, okay, how is that going to help me if I'm still at some point waiting in the same line? I've just moved the line across the street, right? But if, it, if actor A can say, hey, Mr. B, you're too full, I'm going to create another B, if it has the capability of doing that, that solves the problem. But as yeah, you so say, either... if Raptor okay. doesn't support that yet, then I'm back to, what does this buy me? I mean, it may, I just haven't looked at it yet. Right. But I know, again, this is my, or I mean, I haven't looked into it a lot yet. And there, there were relatively sparse examples of this. I mean, I found a fair number but in terms of the example, I don't recall an example, seeing an example of a Raptor creating a new Raptor. Presumably you can do that. Um, but at least with Elixir Erlang, the result that, you know, maybe you send it to Raptor A, maybe Raptor B doesn't do the work, but is a queue, and it instantiates new Raptors to give that piece of work that then gets returned to it, then it returns to somewhere, you know. So you can develop any kind of, architecture that you want with regard to them. All right, so that's enough talking. Let's look at some code. <laughs> Wee. So 
this example is from that this is a modified example that was included in the release notes for Ruby 3.0. And in it, they used something that they, it's called a TAK function, T-A-K, or this is a Terrarii. Basically, this function is doing recursion. And they use this as an example to test the recursive capabilities of CPUs. And the reason why they used it is because it is all CPU processing. So there's no waiting. So there's no waiting for IO. So we want to really look at just full processing, because here it's very visible to see what the difference between threads with a global VM lock versus Rectors. And in the example in the Ruby 3.0, oh, they just looked at Rectors, but I also wanted to look at threads. So what this basically is doing is like line nine, it's, and the code is identical, I should say, between line eight and line 19. These blocks are identical except for line 13 and 24, when I'm using Rectors, when I'm using threads. And on line 14 and 25, you have to essentially wait for all Rectors to finish and, and resume control to the main thread essentially by using the take. And that basically takes the last value of Rectors produced. But in threads, it's called join. So you're joining back to the main thread. That's how I understand that. So same functionality, just different syntax, essentially. Right, right. And I, in terms of like line nine and line 20, for the threads, you'll see in a minute here, I only did two, four, and six iterations, where I, whereas I went up to 12 iterations of uh, the Rectors. Now, the reason I went up to 12 is because I was testing this on a six core, 12 thread, or 12 hyper threaded CPU. So that's why I went up that high. And essentially what this does is like line 10, it just does that function multiple times in sequence. So sequentially, so it's going to run it two times in sequence, four times in sequence, six times, you know, so end to end. So, so essentially just one processor or core is going to be processing this and how long does that take? Whereas the line 11, line 22, it breaks either by Rectors or Threads, splits it out to multiple Rectors or Threads to do the same work. All right, so if we go to the next slide. So this is something I wanted to show. So this is indication of my CPUs and why I have, essentially there's 12 CPUs, so it's six cores, 12 hyper-threads. And this example is the CPU results of four threads. Now you'll notice that there's no processor that is 100%. And the processors, like if you look around the five second mark, the first tick mark from the right is at 10 seconds. So imagine around five seconds, you can see eh, maybe it's around 25, 30% CPU usage. So what that means is when you do something by threads and you have just processor work, no IO waiting, it's essentially splitting, basically if you run it as one thread, you'll get 100% of a CPU. If you do two threads, you'll get 50% of a CPU because the lock's happening. So those two threads are in contention for that lock trying to do work. If you go to four threads, now each thread is doing, is only using 25% of its capabilities. So that's what I'm saying is that now, if they had IO to wait on, then they could do more work in, in that process. Right. So let's look at the next slide. Now, this is an example of six Rectors. Now, we didn't do four, but it would look pretty much the same. You'd have four, let's see, let's call them virtual CPUs up and around 100%. Now, you'll see this bebopped all around here. The lines are going all crazy. But if you look at the bottom, you can see like on the left column, CPU and CPU five, they're at about 100%. Because again, they go up and down and they trade places. So that's about two in that first column. Let's say the 71% is another 100% essentially, or it's transitioning. So that's a third, three. The next column, the third column, where you've got one at 100%, that's four. And then the right column, if you are you able to move your head just a little bit, is that? Yeah, so you got 196. So 
those are the other two, the other six. So essentially you have all six cores doing 100%, although it's hard to tell here because it's, they're tr trade in and out like crazy. Right. But if you go to the next slide, you can see the 12 reactors. Now everything's 100%. So it's able to work at 100% utilization. So that's why I'm saying how reactors allow you to go full parallel. <laughs> so you're using all the hardware in this case. Yeah. 12 threads, 12 reactors, each one on a thread. They're pumping. Yeah. Well, each, I don't know, each one on a thread. It's one thread, but 12 reactors. 12 well, reactors. Yeah. Because it's only using the main thread. There's no threading going on, presumably. Well, I'm. I'm or however they implement it. I don't know how they implement it. I should have said core. Yes. Core. Yes, each one on a core. All right. So now that we've seen this example, because there's a little bit, and then it gets a little bit more inter interesting when we look at actually the numerical results. So if you go to the next slide. Okay, so what we're looking at here, let's look at line two. So what that means is the two means that's the number of iterations. Sequential means sequentially. Uh, and the amount of time spent in user system and the total CPU. But what I think we should focus on is the real because that's the real clock time that it took to process. So it took about 30 seconds to do that talk function twice, two times. If you look at the threaded, it took 31 seconds. So essentially the threads, when you don't have any IO waiting, just full processing, it takes the same amount of times if you have two threads to do it sequentially twice. Now, when you look at the Raptor, it takes half the time. So it's able to use 100% of those cores essentially. Now, if you go down to four, you can see the sequential doubled, so it took 60 seconds. Same thing with the threads, no difference. And again, the Raptors essentially scaled linearly. It put it across four cores, so it does twice the amount of work as the two, because it's doing four iterations, but it still only took 16 seconds because it split it across four cores. About a quarter of the time. Yeah, and then the same thing with six. So you'll see the sequential took, again, you know, three times as long as the two, three times, same thing with threads, but the Raptors, little, not quite as much, but it's pretty much scaling linearly with the number of cores. And this is, I'm referring to line 11, it's at 17. And then you hit eight. Now here I drop the threads because it, the threads are the same as sequential, so it doesn't really matter. So sequential took longer, of course, but now the Raptor, now you're starting to see it break down a little bit. Now, why is it breaking down? So I have a six core, 12 hyperthreaded machine. What that means is I still only have six cores, but what it does, it has extra address space for storing things. And how the hyperthreading works is that it basically uses that IO waiting to basically timeshare that core. So you still got so, some of these reactors waiting in line with each other. Right, because it's essentially one core is trying to run two virtual CPUs. And it runs those two, how it runs, this is my understanding, it runs those virtual CPUs by waiting on IO. But with this function, there's no waiting on IO. So your performance starts getting worse. So much so that when you're at like line 21, when you're at 12 Raptors, you'll see it takes 31 seconds. Well, it would be just as efficient to run line 11, use six Raptors twice, like run six reactors and then six reactors again sequentially, that'll be a total 34 seconds. So that's very close to the result of trying to do 12. So it's basically reactors are great or are scaled linearly when you're talking about core count. 
So, but not, so the sweet but not spot, about hyperthreading. So the sweet spot is number of reactors equals number of cores, not number of hyperthreads. Exactly. Exactly. When you are talking about things that don't have IO, are not widening on IO. Right. So yeah. there's no there's no fudge room in there for them to. Hey, I've got to wait my turn in line on some other exactly. things, so you can go ahead and go do your thing, and then start waiting, and then I can take. Yeah, at least that's my interpretation of these results. If people looking at this have another conclusion, feel free to put them in the comments. So anyway, so that's why I went up to twelve because I was looking at this. It was like, what's going on? I was like, oh, that's probably with this. Okay, so how do reactors do this? So, did you go ahead and give that? So basically, they have their own VM lock because they don't share state. If you go to the next one. Um, and essentially, mutable state is the enemy of concurrency because, again, whenever you're going to introduce a mutable state, then you're going to have to have locks if more than one person is trying to interact with it. And also, I mean, I think async message passing helps as well as in the last, the last comment. Or, So for example, in terms of async message passing, this is kind of what we were talking about before, you could send an actor a message and tell it to send a message when it's done, and then you can go keep on doing other work. So I wanted to talk a little bit, and I've covered this before, where we were talking about object-oriented versus functional programming. Um, so in, typically, in Ruby, you typically hear everything is an object. Well, in Elixir or Erlang, everything is a process, but that process is not an operating system process, and it's an Erlang process. Or another way to say it is that essentially everything is an actor. That's how they do the whole architecture. So if you go to the next slide. Uh, so what's an actor in Elixir? Like I said, it's not an OS process, so it's not that heavy. And it's not even a thread. It's at a more granular level. Uh, so like I said, it's an Erlang process that runs on the Erlang VM. Now, they're kind of similar to talking about Ruby fibers. So Ruby fibers are not threads, but they're a component of a thread. So it sounds kind of similar. Um, and like after the next show, I kind of want to talk about Ruby fibers um, because my understanding with them is that they are still constrained by the one VM lock per process, whereas reactors are not. But it's still need to look into that. All right, so that's pretty much it. That's a whole lot of stuff. Um, <laughs> so, but it's, I mean, the concepts, well, you know, Ractor is a new word, new as of Ruby. 3.0, the the whole actor model has been around for a very long time. Forever, yeah. Um, and these concepts of mm. parallel processing aren't new. So this seems more like this is just trying to figure out the best implementation details for Ruby for this parallel processing paradigm. Yeah, so here's the thing. I never engaged in multi-threaded programming because everything you re read, you hear about people pulling their hair out, people hating it. It's really complicated <laughs> and all this sort of stuff. And I started learning Elixir, which of course relies on, you know, essentially it's all about these actors, these processes, that's their model of concurrency is using this. I'm like, well, this is easy, easy to understand. This is simple. And again, there's no real sharing. It's just independent processes passing messages between one another. So there's no like locking or mutexes or stuff like you have in Ruby and whatnot. So it's like, to me, it's the actor model is concurrency on easy mode. Yeah. Well, because it's easier for me to comprehend and understand it's easy to make something that's not going to blow up 
And I think because it's not sharing state that you have to manage. Yeah, and you know, I I typically stay away from this kind of stuff, conversations, the multi-threading and the parallel processing, because I spend a lot of time in .NET where there's a lot of multi-threading going on. And what I discovered is I spent a lot of time living in in thread hell uh, and, you know, dealing with race conditions and trying to figure out how to troubleshoot and track issues that show up in production that you can't recreate because it just happens to be, you know, some specific clock cycle that happens that crosses these threads and then... So I got to a point where, oh my God, if I ever see another multi-threaded application, I'm going to quit programming forever. It's horrible. Um, so I've kind of stayed away from that whole topic in my Ruby life uh, because I liked the fact that Ruby was nice and simple and straight. And, you know, if I need to trace something, I trace it through in one thread and I can see where everything's going. Um, but... You know, there's there's a lot of benefit to multiprocessing. I I actually still though am sitting here wondering what this buys me that I can't do with something like Sidekick because I can I can effectively make this model in Sidekick. What do you mean, make this model? Well, I can construct things such that, and and we do this. Um, my main thread has an event manager that calls events that basically spawn sidekick jobs, and those jobs can spawn child jobs that can go off and run their thing, while the main sidekick queue, you know, sidekick queue A is doing its thing, calling sidekick queue B. It does its thing, and then when Sidekick QB is done, it. Oh. Well, I'll answer this from two different perspectives. So, one, you don't have to use this in your programming unless you're wanting to do concurrent stuff yourself. So, it's available to you if you want to do it. Yeah. So, I'll say that's one part. The other part is. The advantage of once this is no longer experimental, now you have an opportunity for sidekick programmers to move to using this. And if they move to using this, could they avoid potential bugs from race conditions and their own programming of it for hyper, you know, for concurrency? Instead of doing multi-threaded, they do multiple reactors. And Again, once this is no longer experimental, that means when you're spawning jobs, you don't have a single global interpret, single global VM lock for Ruby process. Now you can have as many as you want. Yeah. So that means you can, again, go full parallel. You can do 100% of a core when you're having all CPU process. You don't. It doesn't. You don't have to make the distinction. Are we waiting for I.O. or not? Well, yeah, but you still have the potential for race conditions, and the more parallel you go, the more complex your code needs to be to prevent race conditions. How, how do you do? How do you have race conditions if you don't have a shared state? Well, I mean, I guess it depends on what you're using the reactors for, but if you're using them to... Um, like I've I've run into situations and I have some now where I've got a big job, overall job that needs to be broken down into small parts. So a lot of those parts are sent off to background jobs to process so that they can run in parallel, right? So I don't have to wait for each one to process. But I have to wait for those jobs to finish before I do final steps on this thing. Sure. If I don't wait for those jobs to finish and I do final steps on this thing before I have all the information from those sub jobs, 
I end up with race conditions. Like I have a null field here when I save this record because I haven't gotten the information back from this. I didn't wait for the field value to come back from you know the sub job. That's a simplistic example, but that's the kind of thing that can happen with these. And the more of those I have, the more complex my safety net code has to be to ensure that I don't miss one of those things. They've all communicated back completion and successful completion. So I, I, I wonder if there are use cases that are better suited to this than others. Um, like you don't necessarily want to parallel process everything. Because troubleshooting that, because troubleshooting that becomes a nightmare. It's an absolute well, you don't nightmare. Have to worry, you don't have to worry about it. It's just, it's just a different way of thinking when you're programming something. Because again, like in Elixir and Erlang, everything is essentially, you can make everything an actor. If you want to do a job, you spawn another actor, you send in a message, hey, do this work and handle the result message however you want to. Well, that's so everything's, everything's built that way. Well, that's that's all well and good as long as you're not dependent on the results of that child process you've spawned. As soon no, as you have, you can be right. You can be, but then you have to make sure that you've got code that ensures you don't get race conditions when this thing doesn't finish. If B doesn't finish, and I'm dependent on B to continue A. A better check that B well, is finished. Well, don't finish A. <laughs> well, that, but that's what I'm saying. You got to know not to finish A yet until B comes back. And yeah. that's those are the race conditions. Uh, I don't, I don't know, but I don't know if I'd call it a race condition. But that's that's me. Well, yeah, I mean, there's it's like database race conditions and programming race conditions, but. Let's call it a timing issue that we have to deal with. No, I mean, you just have to wait for it to finish. Right, which essentially is what caused all the thread hell in .NET. Making sure that you get I the weights. Wait. All, well, making sure that you get the weights all correct and that you don't miss something messaging back. I'm not saying you can't do it. I'm saying the more of those you have, the more complex the safety net code has to be. And also the more complex the troubleshooting gets. So Yeah, I mean, I, I, parallel concurrent programming, you know, doing things in parallel, it's definitely more complex than doing stuff serially. No doubt about it. Yeah. But I will say the actor model in my exposure, because I do have experience with it, but I don't have a lot of experience doing multi-threaded programming. But my exposure to the actor model and my experience using the actor model, it seems to be concurrency on easy mode. Because what it does is it protects you from accessing shared things you can because that's another that's why I really like this that what Ruby is doing and that I hope we move to using this soon because then it affords you protection that you're not going to be accessing shared memory and causing race conditions like you can with threading because you can build the actor model in a multi-threaded solution today but the thing is you're not going to get that independent global VM lock for that thread. You still only have one. So it's right. it still constrains you. Whereas the promise of the Raptors is a safer way to use all the resources of a machine, not when you don't have to wait on IO. Right. And, and if the and if things like Rails utilize this, the things like Sidekick utilize it, I think you're going to see 
a boost in speed performance of those products once Raptors are in there. Not to say they're going to be using Raptors, but I foresee them moving, potentially moving to that and receiving a speed boost because of it. Yeah, and I'm not saying Raptors are a bad idea or a bad thing, and I hope they keep moving forward. I mean, I there is there is a reason to do multi-threading or parallel processing for things. I use parallel processing for testing, and then you know, the whole reason a lot of people use the CICD systems is because they can spin up parallel testing regimens and make your test suite take 20 minutes instead of four hours. Um, but what I'm what I'm wondering is, and again, this I don't have any experience with Raptors. What I'm coming back to is, oh my God, this sounds a lot like multi-threading in .NET conceptually. Is it? Am I gonna hate it as much as I did multi-threading in .NET? And just because, oh my God, I hated using multi-threading in in .NET. It was just a nightmare every time. Well, here's what I'll say. If you're not using Ruby threads today, you're probably not going to be using Raptors tomorrow. Yay, then I don't have anything to worry about. Yeah, so I mean, <laughs> it's, again, if you use it, you this is a new, new tool, tool to use. If you never do anything, like a, a Rails programmer unless they're going to be running, processing their own jobs in a separate way outside of Sidekick, you're not going to be using Raptors. I mean, yes, that's true. But this has benefits to using more resources of whatever machine you're running Sidekick on. So if Sidekick moves to this model, if Ruby finishes and Sidekick moves to this model, I could see... Now you get more bang for your buck out of the machines you're running Sidekick on. Now, yeah. Now, see, if if Sidekick were to use this underneath me and I didn't have to worry about those implementation details, I'd be a very happy camper. <laughs> right, because what if you suddenly get a 25%, you can run 25% more jobs on the same server simply by moving from threads to Raptors? Right. Well, okay. So see that if, yeah, if Sidekick were able to employ this stuff, and I know, I know it's not ready for prime time yet, but if Sidekick were ready to, were able to do this, that would be a huge benefit to me. Yeah. Because it's, it's incredible amount of bang for zero buck in my case. I mean, we pay yeah. for Sidekick, but. You know, it's, it's, we don't have to invest the time into the implementation details of the multi-threading garbage and keeping that all straight, which Sidekick already has to do a lot of keeping things straight. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. Yeah. I mean, that's what I try to met my two, answer my two points in terms of one, it, it kind of goes back to, if you want to do concurrent programming, this gives you an easy mode to do it. If you want to start doing, you don't you don't necessarily have to do. If you don't do multi-threading today, you don't have to use Raptors tomorrow, probably. But secondly, the tools vendors, Sidekick, Rails, it gives them greater opportunities to do more processing, run more efficiently. Yeah. So I guess I could see huge benefit kind of thing. Because honestly, I've as long as I've been doing Rails, I've never done any kind of multi-threading. The only parallel processing I've ever used is for my test suites. I've just never been in a situation where I needed to do that much parallel processing. Now I could see, you know, with this this big kickoff of like Ruby game programming and stuff like that, this would be a hugely beneficial to something like a game that has to do a lot of uh, a lot of cycles in one type of of function, not necessarily a game, but that that mode of programming, where it's you know I've got three queues, but I got to get five thousand people through the queue every second. 
So, yeah, I mean, like I said, I think it's a good idea. I like I like the fact that that technology is moving forward, and I'm interested to see where it turns out. I just don't see it for me yet. But hey, um, but that's a great thing. It could be for everybody. Right. Well, I mean, this this has made me more excited about Ruby because that's kind of why I started Elixir because, you know, Ruby honestly is a dog, and then the promise of the concurrent programming and seeing what Elixir can do is kind of why I started learning it because I'm like, again, Ruby's demise has been communicated for many years. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so you know, I was hedging my bets at one point and said, oh, well, this Elixir stuff looks pretty cool. So I started, you know, learning it that way. But this has actually made me more excited for what Ruby can do. So. Yeah. And, you know, I, yeah, I, I think it's helping to move Ruby forward. I think it's, I think it's a good thing, even if it turns out never to be prime time ready and this experiment somehow fails. I still think it's good steps in moving the the technology forward. I mean, you know, experimenting and failing is just as valuable as succeeding. So, not not that I think it will, but I I already see lots of benefits from a learning standpoint. Um, but see how it goes. Um, I I think. Honestly, I think Ruby is still on a good upswing, good glide path, and is only getting better. So we shall see. Uh, anyway, hope you guys enjoyed that tonight. Thanks for being with us. Uh, if you have any questions or comments, please leave them in the comment box below. Also, please make sure and follow, uh, like, or subscribe um, so that you know when we go live. You can also join us on our website, rubberduckdevshow.com, to see all our podcasts and episodes there, as well as join our newsletter. And you can keep up with what we're doing on Twitter. Uh, follow us there at, at DuckyDevShow. Uh, we are here every Wednesday night at 8 p.m. Eastern, so please feel free to jump in and join the chat live. We're happy to discuss things with you. And until next week, happy programming. Happy programming.